up at first we start here at home with your best bc election coverage and we've got a fantastic panel assembled for you as we finish up week two of the bc election campaign all right we've got all three major political parties ready to go here on the line i got jazz joe hall he is the liberal candidate in richmond queensborough jazz thanks for coming on again pleasure mike okay adam olson's on the line green candidate for in saanich north in the islands adam thank you thank you great to be here and also David Eby, NDP candidate, Vancouver Point Grey. David, thank you. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, all three of you guys. Let's start with what I think was probably the biggest news of the week uh, in the campaign, and, and that was the promise by uh, Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson to eliminate the provincial sales tax in year one of a COVID-19 recovery plan, chop it down to 3% in year two. This is probably one of the biggest promises we'll see from the Liberals in this campaign. Jazz Johal for the Liberals, let me go to you first. Can you make the pitch here to the listeners of why this is a good idea? Because I've heard both sides of it. Some people love it and others think it's 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 a Hail Mary pass. Your thoughts? Well, you know, at the end of the day, Michael, since January of this year to now, there's about 150,000 unemployed British Columbians as of today that were working in January. We're in a once in a century pandemic. People need help and small businesses need help. I think going around your neighborhood or my neighborhood and my constituency, you're going to see small businesses that have been impacted. Restaurants specifically, three to five percent profit margins in some cases for a lot of them. They're not going to last uh, until next year. This uh, PST cut puts more money in people's hands and hopefully allows them to spend some money in some of these small businesses that require help. The Business Council of British Columbia estimates between 10 to 20,000 small businesses in British Columbia have the potential to go out of business by the end of 2021. This is a clear and present danger to our economy. And we have to do something quickly, and it has to be bold. And that's why we went forward with it. This is temporary, not a though, right? Uh, issue. Temporary, temporary. though. It's okay, well, it lasts for it's... two years. Yes. Okay, so third year, you'd go back, year three, you're back to 7% sales tax. Is that right? Exactly, yes. So the okay. first year, uh, roughly, it would cost, uh, cost the, uh, the government about $6.8 billion. Let me put that in context yeah. for you. Since the NDP's been in power, 2017 to now, they've raised 23 separate taxes, which has generated an extra $5.5 billion dollars. That actually, okay. that cut alone it just compensates almost a little bit more than what the uh, the NDP have done in raising taxes. Every okay, man, woman, and child in this province today pays extra eleven hundred dollars under these guys, and I okay, think British Columbians have forgotten that. Let's go to David Eby and get his response for the NDP. David Eby. Good morning, Mike. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, Jazz for the BC Liberals really illustrates the uh, the sort of. Uh, bizarre nature of this proposal. So the idea is that people who are suffering as a result of coronavirus, the 150,000 people who are unemployed, uh, now uh, don't have to pay the PST when they're out spending money. Well, guess what? They're unemployed. They're not out spending money. Uh, And so this doesn't benefit them. This benefits the people who are still employed and still have money to spend. So if you think, and if Mr. Wilkinson thinks, that there's uh, uh, 7 to 10, let's be honest, billion dollars uh, available to spend here, why wouldn't you do targeted programs for the people who are suffering? Mm-hmm. And the reality is, with those kinds of numbers, 7 to $10 billion, um, British Columbians aren't dumb. They know they're going to have to pay for it somehow. It's going to come from something. And I've heard, uh, Jazz, on your show, Mike, uh, defending the BC Liberals pulling a billion dollars out of ICBC. Now, ICBC has about $16 billion in the bank account to pay for claims. Will he commit that the BC Liberals will not uh, liquidate ICBC 
will not take other radical steps that will drive up costs for British Columbians when they have to turn to the private insurance market like they do for strata insurance. You know, it's a radical plan. It's wildly expensive, and it doesn't help the people who need it the most. Okay, Adam. And it is a Hail Mary pass. That's absolutely right. Adam Olson for the Green Party. Your thoughts? Yeah, uh, thanks, Mike. I think basically this just demonstrates that the B.C. Liberals uh, remain out of ideas. This is an antiquated approach to to dealing with, uh, uh, as Jazz called it, a a once-in-a-century pandemic. And I think there's far, far better ways to spend uh, $7 billion. Of course, they're going to just borrow to fill the gaps that are created by this. And so uh, it's just an astounding lack of ideas. And... um, and just showing that, uh, you know, I think uh, the B.C. Liberals uh, are, are going to basically hand big business the, uh, the the tax break, and it'll be on the backs of small business, okay. despite what Jazz said. Okay, Jazz Johal, I'm kind of curious about some of the loopholes in this promise. So you say that the you would eliminate the PST except for certain items. So if you buy a new car that is over $125,000, for example, if you're buy, in the market for a Lamborghini, you would still have to pay... The, the PST, but it would you'd, you'd have PST taken off a yacht or a Lear jet. Why didn't you guys bring in some more loopholes and some of those real big ticket items? Well, <clears throat> so that can be looked into. Like it, it, we're not there to help the rich. This is about the average person doing shopping uh, on a daily basis where they're paying PST. This is w- w- the folks that we want to help. I don't want to be helping folks paying for a hundred twenty-five thousand dollar Lamborghini. It, uh, you know, uh, David talked about the fact that the folks are unemployed. Well, they're looking for work. If you're spending money, if those that are working are spending money in small businesses, they're going to be doing some hiring along the way as well. And that's what we're talking about here is helping everyday people who have to purchase products and are out shopping. This helps them a little yeah. bit. And like I said, this is not permanent. It is temporary. It is temporary. Okay, Dave, David Eby. Once it- David Eby. Well, there's, there's two uh, prominent B.C. liberals most recently, George Abbott, who has said, you cannot do this cut to PST without cutting services. And, and can you think of a time when we ever needed more uh, public services like health care, like child care, like seniors care, long-term care facilities? Uh, the idea that you can gut the, one of the remaining revenue sources during the pandemic for the provincial government, about 20% of the provincial budget, and not end up cutting services, nobody believes that. How could anybody okay. believe that you could get rid of the PST and not cut services? Okay, let's and move on. And insist that's the case despite their track record. In the interest of time, let's move on to another topic here. And David Eby just mentioned long-term care, and we've seen a lot of long-term care promises this week. Let me go to Adam Olson for the Green Party. Uh, as I understand it, the Green Party platform is to what? Uh, you would you would only run what uh, non-profit long-term care, so you'd phase out for-profit private care. Is that correct? Or? The, the focus of our plan is to start to move away from public money going to uh, private uh, for-profit uh, or for-profit services. Uh, the, the reality of it is, if you take a look at uh, Isabel McKenzie, the BC Seniors Advocate report, a billion reasons to care. Uh, there's there's no accountability. There's very little transparency. Uh, in in the system right now, and we see uh, 207,000 hours of, of care not being delivered to seniors, uh, but despite the fact that British Columbians are paying for it. And so rather than, uh, than tinkering around the edges, we believe that we need to reform uh, to, to get into the, the system of long-term care for seniors and, and reform it. Uh, systemic change rather than just throwing money uh, into a situation where you know, we've got a, a bucket that's leaking water, and I think the NDP solution earlier this week was to just keep filling it with water. Our solution is to get in, fix the problem at the core, uh, and and yeah. move away from public money going to uh, fund 
uh, shareholder okay. uh, profits. Okay, this is a big issue for a lot of people. Isabel McKenzie, the seniors advocate, will be on the show later today, by the way. So the NDP promised this week as well to do a billion-dollar-plus plan on long-term care, try to bring in private rooms for residents of long-term care facilities. Jazz Johal, what would the Liberals do on this file? Well, look, I think COVID is uh, the uh, challenge. Okay, you're, you're breaking up. You're breaking up real bad. So let me see if we can just clean that up while I go to David Eby. Dave, could you could you quickly explain what the what the NDP are promising in long-term care? Sure. Well, uh, as Health Minister Adrian Dix already delivered uh, a couple major reforms. One is uh, no more flipping of, uh, of health care employee contracts at these places. So you're your mom or dad gets used to a particular and builds a relationship with a particular healthcare worker who's helping them out, and then all of a sudden the contract gets flipped and that person gets moved to another facility, or that person is working at two or three facilities, moving the flu and COVID uh, around from facility to facility. So all that is stopped under the NDP, and we also have a commitment to hire 7,000 new uh, healthcare workers in that sector to provide supports to seniors. We're actually making progress in ensuring that the minimum standards are being met for all seniors in the province under the Liberals. Uh, thousands of seniors uh, not getting uh, the minimum of, uh, you know, a bath a week. And, and this is kind of an outrageous uh, situation. And so we've been reversing that and fixing those things. 7,000 more healthcare workers are going to go a long way to helping seniors in those care okay. facilities. Let's see if I got a better connection with Jazz Johal there. Jazz, what would the Liberals do on this? Well, look, we've already said we want an independent review of the entire long-term care uh, in British Columbia. COVID has shown that there are holes where we need to uh, be improving and to meet the growing the, the needs of, 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 uh, of uh, seniors. So we've already said that we would, if it's required, we will put more money into the system if it's required, uh, and, uh, and it done, done so in a very timely manner that we can get on with this, that there certainly is significant challenges ahead. I totally agree with that and what David is saying, but this notion that this one bath a day thing that he is talking about, I think that's highly offensive, that everybody, no matter what party it is, wants to see appropriate long-term care for seniors. What's, a, what's offensive about that? What's offensive about well, that? The Isabel well, Isabel McKenzie had brought out a report that's kind of identifying some of these gaps in care in these in these homes. I do not doubt that, but to say that any political party has policies that moving forward would actually recommend that or would want that to happen. Of course we yeah. don't. There are gaps. I fundamentally agree with that. But I don't think any political party, any political party, NDP, BC Liberal or Green, of course we all want to do a good job here. Nobody is saying that we want to, you know, provide uh, poor care for seniors at all. Okay. So I think there is a solution here. An independent review is needed first and foremost. All right, welcome back as we continue with our election candidates panel. Jazz Johal for the Liberals, Adam Olson for the Green Party, David Eby for the NDP. Very grateful to all three of them. David Eby, let me ask you about an issue that you were really seized with as, as Attorney General before the election was called, and that was the, the uh, public inquiry into money laundering in British Columbia. Has that now been suspended, and when will it start up again? Will it start up again after the election? Yeah, the commissioner has uh, suspended hearings because we were going to be hearing from uh, witnesses who worked in government uh, at the peak of this activity, and they were going to be talking about their experiences with the government, and he didn't want that to uh, interfere in the election process. And uh, I totally agree with his decision. I can only imagine that uh, Mike DeYoung, who was uh, minister responsible for a good chunk of that time, and, uh, and Mr. Wilkinson, who was around the cabinet table, uh, breathed a big sigh of relief about that. Um, but this commission is entirely independent of government, and it should be. And I think if British Columbians really want to know what happened with money laundering, not just in our casinos, but in our real estate market and otherwise, 
they should be supporting the NDP because we will be going through with this commission and it will finish and it will have okay. the resources it needs to get to the bottom of things. Okay, Jazz Joe Hall, if the Liberals win the election, would you commit to continuing the public inquiry into money laundering? Absolutely. We've been supportive of the uh, inquiry and cooperative with the inquiry. Uh, and we would continue to do so. We are supportive of, of Mr. Collins' work. Uh, I certainly will not be challenging his integrity, and I don't think Mr. Eby should either. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, Mr. Cullen made this independent decision on his own, but we have been cooperating from day one, and we look forward to his findings, period. Okay, Adam Olson, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I am uh, certainly supportive of the inquiry. Uh, our caucus uh, for about a month, uh, nearly every day in question period, called for the BCNDP, uh, to establish the inquiry, we're certainly right. supportive of it and and seeing it through to the end, and thankful that uh, that it is uh, that there's been the leadership there to uh, to see this process through to okay. this point. Okay, I'm glad to hear the Liberals commit to continuing the inquiry. Me Jazz Joe, Jazz Joe, let me ask you this: uh, another big issue that came up this week on the campaign trail, and that is homelessness, tent cities, homeless encampments. Uh, public public and community safety. We see the largest homeless encampment in Canada in Strathcona Park right now. Uh, a lot of the residents in that community are pleading for help there. What would the Liberals do on this file? We've already said that we'd work very closely with mayors and law enforcement to deal with this issue. The numbers, Michael, are quite staggering when you look at what's happening in communities around British Columbia under the NDP. There's been a 21% increase in assault with a weapon in Vancouver, a 47% increase uh, in B&Es, uh, in Victoria, where you live, break and enter calls in downtown Victoria have tripled by 190%. Violent crime in Maple Ridge has increased 144%. And violent crime in Surrey is up 45%. All of this while the NDP has been in government. Okay, what, so what if, why is it their fault? Why is it, why is it the NDP's why fault? Not? Look, because we have allowed this to continue for many, many, many years now under the NDP. We have to work closely with law enforcement and with social service agencies to deal with this issue. You can't be just opening up uh, rental hotels and warehousing people without proper wraparound services. Okay, David so Eby, what do you say to that? Issue. David Eby. I mean, it flies in the face of the facts. Maple Ridge, there was a, a tent city that went on for years under the B.C. Liberals. It was our government that got people out of that tent city and into housing. Uh, the same thing on the Wally Strip, the same thing in Oppenheimer Park. We're cleaning up the mess they left after 16 years. And if you spend $10 billion to eliminate the PST, you've got no money for seniors. You've got no money to house the homeless, which is why Mr. Joe Hall, when you ask him, what is he going to do about seniors? What is he going to do about the homeless? He's got nothing. And the reason he's got nothing is because they spent all the money on the PST. And so, you know, I, I do appreciate that they want to study the problems. They want to think about the problems. They want to work with people. But at the end of the day, you need the 27,000 units of housing that we've got built or under construction to get people off the street. And okay. the one fact that he leaves out about the crime statistics is obviously COVID. You know, people aren't downtown, so there's more break-ins. There's more opportunity for violence. Okay, and we're almost, and it's we're, a North sad, America-wide phenomenon. Sadly, we're almost out of time, but Adam, I'll give you the last, last word here. we just got a minute left. Yeah, it, it, it is an appalling, uh, un, unfortunately, Jazz, that's an appalling way to rewrite history. The fact of the matter is, is, three and a half years ago, housing in this province, almost in every part of the market, was in absolute uh, freefall due to the policies of the B.C. Liberals. The, the work that's been done over the last half years is just the start of what needs to be done to, to somehow characterize this as a B.C. NDP or even as a, a, something that we dealt with in the confidence and supply agreement alone. 
this was an inheritance and an inheritance okay. that all British Indians have to deal with. And we have to deal with it proactively. Let's not rewrite history. All right, let's talk about the stunning news out of America last night. U.S. President Donald Trump tests positive for COVID-19. First Lady Melania Trump has also tested positive for the virus. A short time ago, Mark Meadows, the White House Chief of Staff, emerged to update reporters, and he gave an update on how Trump is doing. The president does have mild symptoms, and as uh, as we look to try to uh, make sure that not only his health and safety and welfare is good. We continue to look at that for all of the American people. All right, let's go live to Washington now. And Reggie Ciccini is my guest, Washington producer and correspondent for Global News. Reggie, thanks a lot for coming on. Good morning. Reggie, what is the latest here on Trump's condition and what kind of treatment is he receiving? Well, uh, those are questions right now that are not being uh, answered in a kind of forthcoming way by the White House. Uh, Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, when he was speaking uh, about an hour and a half ago, uh, should note speaking to reporters without wearing a mask. Uh, he said the president's symptoms are mild. We are hearing from reports, though, that that includes a mild fever uh, and some fatigue. That fatigue was noticeable when the president was at a couple of events over the last 24 to 48 hours. Uh, outside of that, treatment-wise, we aren't being told what the president is being given. Uh, it was asked if he was taking hydroxychloroquine, a kind of yeah. debunked uh, medicine that uh, the president has really been pushing as a therapeutic. Uh, the White House wouldn't answer that, uh, simply saying that he's doing well and working in the residence. Okay, Mark Meadows, his chief of staff, said Trump is on the job. He is isolating and quarantined in the White House, but still working. Let's have a listen to this. It's Mark Meadows a short time ago. The, the doctors continue to uh, monitor both his health and the health of the first lady. Uh, we'll continue to do that. They'll, they'll be glad to provide some, some updates uh, later t- today as, as we look at this. Okay, such a fast-developing situation, Reggie. Obviously, Trump has got the best medical tre- treatment and doctors in the world. Uh, he continues. Is he working? Is he at his desk? Uh, is he? Is what's happening there? Do we know? Yeah, we know the president has uh, kind of taken up residence inside the residence of the White House. He's not working from the Oval Office uh, or anywhere on the first floor uh, of the White House today. Uh, we know he's been in communication with senior aides in the administration. We also know he's been in contact with senior leadership in the GOP, including Mitch McConnell from the Senate. Discuss- Discussing uh, the moving forward with a nomination process for the uh, Supreme Court with Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, one point on that, however, one of the Republican senators from Utah, Mike Lee, has now come out to say he has tested positive. He wow. was at the White House earlier this week. He was meeting with uh, Amy Coney Barrett earlier this week as well. And there are now questions that if he's going to be put into some kind of isolation or quarantine, does this pose problems for the Senate as they try to work through that nomination process? This one wow. positive for the president really has caused kind of a spiral situation. Okay, one of the things that jumped out at me too when Mark Meadows, the chief of staff of the White House, was speaking to reporters there a short time ago is he said he expects more positive cases of COVID-19 at the White House. We've already heard about a positive case for Hope Hicks, one of the senior advisors to Trump. What did you make of that comment that he expects more positives to be coming out of the White House here? Well, there was some ambiguity to that comment when he made it. He didn't really express whether he know or whether he was saying that because the virus really isn't eradicated yet, that there's a potential that the White House could be inflicted with another positive case sometime down the line, or if that was potentially kind of a hidden remark that maybe there are more positive cases that they're simply not releasing. This has not been a transparent administration. They have worked to try and say that people's positive test results should be kept uh, kind of under wraps because it's nobody else's business. Uh, so there are issues. Uh, 
as to whether or not that was kind of a, a hidden message or just kind of a warning down the line that we may not be turning the corner, as the president has been saying. Okay, how about Vice President Mike Pence? What is his status? Mike Pence uh, and the second lady tested negative earlier today. That was put out by the vice president's office. We've also just received within the last 20 minutes or so a note from, Vi- uh, from former Vice President Joe Biden, their physician, the family physician, saying that the Bidens, uh, both Joe and Jill, have tested negative as well. There okay. were questions that he may have uh, contracted that on the stage with the president earlier this week. Okay, how does this affect this election campaign now? I mean, this is the big question here going forward, 32 days away from the election. What is the impact here on the campaign? Well, there are a couple. Number one, President Trump's messaging to his base has been that this is not that severe of a virus, that it really, you know, it comes and goes rather quickly. Uh, And a lot of his base has really turned around to say that they believe that the coronavirus is a hoax. Their president is now going to have to change his messaging to say, look, if I could get it, you can possibly get it too. Uh, The second issue for the president is he's now taken off of the ground. He's not able to get to these battleground states where he's falling behind Joe Biden in the polling. Uh, He's not able to hold these campaigns, but he's also potentially not going to be able to take part in the second debate because he may still be in isolation so there are some serious side effects here that could impact the president on the campaign trail okay the second debate is almost certain to be canceled would you say uh, look, there are questions uh, as to whether it was going to go in the first place. They were talking about potential changes to the format of it because the first one was just so disastrous. The president had thrown a wrench in that saying, well, maybe uh, it wasn't fair that that was happening. So it was questionable as to whether the president would actually take part. This now calls into question again. Do they run the risk of taking the president out of isolation even after a negative test if one shows up, uh, putting the, 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 the former vice president in jeopardy, also the moderator and anybody else who was in this kind of town hall style event? Okay, speaking to Global News, Washington, D.C. correspondent Reggie Ciccini. Now, you mentioned that Mike Pence, the vice president, has tested negative for the coronavirus. What does that mean for his uh, scheduled debate against Kamala Harris, the vice president nominee for the Democrats? They have a debate scheduled coming up here in a few days, right? They do have a debate. It's scheduled for next week in Utah. Uh, It it hasn't been said yet whether that's going to be canceled or go forward, but I think it draws uh, kind of a new focus to this presidential debate, which is oftentimes kind of set aside. It's not as impactful as the presidential debate, but given the fact that for a brief moment of time today, there was a worry that Mike Pence may have to assume the acting role of president, uh, this will be a closely watched debate to see whether or not both of these candidates, both Kamala Harris and Vice President Mike Pence, do have what it takes to potentially assume the role of president president if that's ever needed wow okay well you know most people who contract this virus recover trump of course though is in in a higher risk category as an old as an older guy an older man he's the he's the oldest president ever to hold the office but presumably he does recover is is there a potential for trump to uh 14 days from now after he finishes his isolation he's healthy he recovers from the virus and just resumes campaigning in the final two weeks of the campaign and, and, and tries to tell the American people, look, I told you this thing is, yeah, people can get it, but they can recover from it. Is that, is that kind of the best case scenario now for Trump? It's likely what the uh, what the campaign is going to try to push for is that showing that the president was able to recover, the president is strong, the president is fit and healthy, uh, and right. that he is best suited to to continue on with the presidency. That will be the underlying note coming from the campaign, not the severity of the virus saying, look, I went against it, I played down the severity, I contracted it. The messaging is going to have to change to make this a positive for the president. Okay, what about the timeline here of how this all, all went down? Because I'm wondering about whether all the protocols that are in place for the, in the White House for trans, to try and prevent transmission of this disease were followed because Hope Hicks, uh, one of the senior advisors to Trump, traveled with the president 
to Minnesota on Wednesday. Then on Thursday morning, she tested positive for COVID-19. A few hours later, Trump was on Air Force One going to New Jersey for a fundraiser. So shouldn't he have been isolating at that point? I mean, are there any concerns about whether White House guidelines uh, were followed here properly? This is where questions of transparency are coming up for the White House because they knew Hope Hicks was positive. Not only did they allow for that trip to go to New Jersey last night, but at 11 o'clock in the morning D.C. time, they also allowed for Kayleigh McEnany, the press secretary, to hold a full press briefing in the small Brady briefing room with journalists present, uh, not mentioning the fact that Hope Hicks had tested positive at that time. So it's unclear whether or not you know you can look at Hope Hicks and say that she is kind of uh, patient zero in this because we're now learning just within the last couple of minutes or so that last Saturday, Saturday, when the president was holding his nomination process for uh, Amy, Sconey, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, the, the president of Notre Dame, where, where she was a teacher uh, for, for, for a professor for many years, uh, was at that announcement. He has confirmed that he was positive and was not wearing a mask and was shaking hands. So there oh. are questions as to how far back contact tracing is now actually going to have to go. Last question for you, Reggie. What do you think is being discussed in the back rooms of the Democratic Party here and the, and the, and the Biden campaign? I mean, obviously, the public comments were, will be, we, we wish the president a, a speedy recovery. No one would wish this virus on anyone. They want Trump to recover. I wonder, in the back rooms and in the war room, are, are they wondering whether this is a, a positive development politically or a negative one? I mean, this is a campaign that's been framed at, about Trump's uh, mismanagement allegedly of the pandemic and now here he is he has the virus himself do you think the the democrats are kind of quiet privately celebrating this and they think this is a positive for the biden campaign I mean, look, Vice President Joe Biden has been kind of revered for the empathy that he shows for victims of COVID-19, really for, for the victims of anything that, that has impacted them uh, from, from point A to point B, whether it's COVID-19 or not. Uh, and I think publicly you will find that the campaign tries to show empathy towards the president, but tries to use this as a positive for themselves to say, look, it, this is what happens when you act recklessly, when you don't wear a mask, when you don't uh, encourage your, your supporters to practice and partake in mitigation efforts, uh, as the campaign itself has done for Joe Biden. This will simply be an opportunity for them to say, look, we've treated this serious. We stayed in our basement. We were made fun of that by the president. We get made fun of for wearing masks by the president. We are not positive right now. The president is. They will try to use this as a way to say they took this seriously. Wow. Okay. Amazing stuff. Thank you, Reggie. Welcome back. A little breaking news for you now. The televised leaders debate in the BC election is now confirmed and scheduled for Tuesday, October 13th at 6.30 p.m. It'll be from 6.30 to 8 p.m., so 90 minutes. The moderator of the debate will be Shachi Curl, president of the Angus Reid Institute. She joins me now. Shachi, thank you for coming on. Hey, Mike. Happy to be with you. Okay, great choice for moderator. I think you'll do an awesome job. Have you? Um, I, these are always tricky. These debates. Uh, what would be your sort of approach uh, going into that uh, debate? Oh gosh, I mean, I think that that is something I'm going to be thinking a lot about and focusing on in the days to come. As as we do, you know, the the leaders prepare for the debate. The moderators and the consortium prepare to make sure that that debate goes smoothly, fairly, and respectfully. So I'm really going to approach it. Uh, from from an assertive fairness point of view, you want it to be respectful, but you want people following the rules. I I right. watched Tuesday evening uh, with Chris Wallace, same as many people did, and and I, I will tell you, Mike, very honestly, I had a holy crap, what have I just said yes to moment? So, <laughs> <All right. laughs> pray for me, people. But uh, but you know, Chris had talked about you know I want to be invisible, and I think what he meant by that. 
uh, the, the U.S. debate moderator was. He did not want to be seen as activist or interventionist or, or putting a thumb on the scale or picking sides. But sometimes right. I think that interventions are going to be necessary, provided our leaders uh, don't, if, if they're not following the rules, well, we're going to have to remind them of that in a way, again, that is, that is clear and uh, irrefutable, but also respectful. What I would say, Mike, is this debate, it's not about... It's, it's not about the leaders, it's not about me, it's about the voters. And so each of the three leaders, Ms. Firstenau, Mr. Horgan, Mr. Wilkinson, have an opportunity to make their case to BC voters. And really, I, w- I don't really want it to be, if it's a win for one of the leaders, the pundits can decide on that. Right. I, want to be it to wi- a wi- I want it to be a win for voters, Mike, yeah. who can watch and listen and actually glean something about their positions. Okay, well, I think you're a great choice to be the moderator, and I think you'll do a, a terrific job. And I think this is going to be an important debate in this election, because this is just the weirdest election we've ever ever had during the COVID-19 pandemic. The traditional kind of campaigning is simply not happening. So I think the leaders' debate just becomes that much more important. And hopefully you won't have to deal with the same type of gong show uh, that Chris Wallace dealt with I earlier really this week. I'm, I'm sure you won't. I'm sure you won't. I'm sure it won't be that bad. Uh, let me ask you about, and congrat- congratulations on that appointment. I think that's great. Let me ask you about uh, one of the latest uh, polls that you have out from the Angus Reid Institute. And this is fascinating. And that's the potential for the development of a COVID-19 vaccine and whether uh, Canadians will take it in large numbers. What did you find out? Well, we've been asking this question since midsummer when those first trials uh, from Oxford and, and other uh, pharmaceutical and academic institutions started to feel real and talk of a vaccine started to feel real. And at that time, uh, we said to Canadians, look, would, would you get a vaccine? And on that scale of yes, would it be right away? Would you hang back a little or would you not get a vaccine at all? Uh, what we're finding now is only two in five Canadians are saying that they want to be at the front of the line for vaccination. When you consider the number of Canadian adults in this country, when you consider the fact that the government is, uh, is trying to, uh, you know, secure 70 million doses of a potential Mac, uh, vaccine, the fact that so few actually say, I want this ASAP, I think is quite worrisome. And that number has slipped and dropped, especially in Alberta and Quebec, since midsummer. Wow. So there's some there's some weird dynamics at play that I think we've got to dig into a little bit more to understand why people are are ambivalent or hesitant or vacillating on getting a vaccine. Yeah, well, of course, there's that anti-vaxxer movement out there, and I guess the perception has always been that it's been kind of a fringe kind of thing. But when you see numbers like that, does maybe underestimate the kind of the the, the concerns that people have around vaccines. No, we asked the question, and you're right, Mike, we asked the question, what, were you, what would be your reasons for not wanting to get one right away? Um, you know, most people are, are worried about side effects. They express that. They also question the efficacy of vaccination. And so, uh, you know, I think those are two things. But, you know, there, there may be some other factors at play. We've seen some news coming out of Quebec where there's conspiracy theories at play. And to your point, Mike, when we've had years of other garden variety anti-vax uh, percolation, whether it's don't get a flu shot or, you know, getting your children vaccinated for measles, mumps, rubella can lead to autism. And some of the things yeah. we've seen out there, public health officials have already been struggling with this or on the measles front. 
not necessarily surprising to see it translate into the COVID-19 vaccine conversation. Okay, some fascinating new numbers there as always. Shachi, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Talk soon. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about dangerous driving in Canada now. And I'm talking about distracted driving, speeding, driving while you're tired, forgetting to put the turn signal on. A brand new survey says most Canadians admit to dangerous driving over the past year. The report found an estimated 19 million Canadian adults. That's 63% admit to dangerous driving. The report was compiled by Finder.com. It's a website that helps Canadians make life decisions like choosing a credit card and buying a home. Let's talk about this very interesting report now uh, with my guest, Nicole McKnight. She is the Canada PR manager at Finder.com. Hi, Nicole. Hi, Mike. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for being here. This is a fascinating report. So, dangerous driving, how is that defined? Like, what are some of the more common infractions that Canadians admit to when they're behind the wheel? Yeah, for sure. So, um, we ask Canadians a, a large number of, sort of, about a large number of their habits when driving. And we found that... Um, Eating actually tops the list of dangerous driving habits. So eating while driving, 49% of Canadians admitted to doing that. Um, and then the other most common offenses were speeding at 33% nationally, forgetting to signal um, at 21%, and also driving while sleepy with 21% admitting to that. So those were the most common offenses. Um, but we also asked about some other you know, interesting ones, whether it was texting or even changing clothes or <laughs> disturbingly micro sleeping while you're driving which is okay, a, okay. a very micro small percentage admitting to but it's, it's still a little disturbing that anyone would admit to that so okay nicole that one jumped out at me too micro sleeping yeah. you got to be kidding me what is micro sleeping when you're behind the wheel yeah i think it's just when people are very fatigued and they they kind of admit that they've nodded off a little bit uh-huh. while they've been driving which is actually quite frightening so um so so yeah i think you know we saw Thankfully, that habit was, you know, sort of in in BC specifically was one percent, so not a huge problem. But but still, that's that's a little frightening that people are driving that fatigued and to the point of doing something like that. I can remember um, a few times doing some long road trips and feeling a little sleepy behind the wheel, and that's not a good feeling. And so I remember a few times of pulling over. I mean, if you're sleeping, pull over and just take a nap, do something. Don't keep don't keep driving. But what about um, sure. that? Eating behind the wheel. Now, I'll admit that, you know, I've snarfed down the occasional Big Mac behind the wheel. Um, Is that really dangerous? I think most people would do that. But I guess that is technically distracted driving, I guess, right? Yeah. And I think, like, to your point, there's, there's a wide range between, you know, eating while still, you know, paying attention versus micro-sleeping and, and everything in between. There's going to be different levels of danger, of course. But I think it was just wanting to get a sense of, of you know, what are the kind of things people are being distracted by when they're behind the wheel. And, and, and while eating may be safe for some people that are, you know, sort of used to doing that to some degree, you know, again, you could you could drop a piece of food on the floor or package or while you're concentrating on unpackaging, uh, you know, some food from the drive through Again, it just takes a few seconds to take your attention away from the wheel and, and you can be putting yourself or others at, at a lot of risk. Okay, how about distracted driving? We hear a lot about that these days. What did you find out from people who were admitting to, say, texting or using their phone while they're driving? Yeah, so I think 
that with with texting, I think that the fact that we've all become quite attached to our our smartphones, naturally things like texting behind the wheel tend to get the most, you know, media attention and, and just people, you know, kind of focus in on that. And, you know, in BC, for example, 11% of people admitted to texting behind the wheel. So it's not an insignificant number. But I think also Canadians need to keep in mind that, you know, the more sort of maybe habits like speeding that, you know, wider variety of people are doing um, are also quite dangerous. So, you know, might not be getting as much attention, um, but those are the kind of habits like, you know, speeding, forgetting to signal, and again, driving while fatigued that much more people are doing. So it's, I guess what I'm saying is, yes, texting is, is becoming more prevalent and definitely a big issue, but don't forget about those other habits that, um, that more people are admitting to. Okay, how about the, some of the more serious uh, infractions like drunk driving or driving while high on drugs? How many people admitted to that? Yeah, so, um, it, you know, it's varied. We found that there was a lot of variance sort of... Um, province by province, uh, for example, like Nova Scotia had the highest instance of people admitting to driving under the influence. I think they were around 6% or so. Whereas um, the influence of alcohol, to clarify, whereas in BC, it was 1%. Um, so perhaps there's different habits across different provinces. So, you know, BC is actually doing quite well in that area. It's, it's only, I, I say quite well in terms of being lower than the other, other provinces. Really, no one should be doing this. Um, but only 1% of people in BC were admitting to driving under the influence of any, any substance. Okay, how at, about... At any point. How about the age-old question, men, men drivers versus women drivers? Did you find any... <laughs> Any uh, any result in your in your survey on whether women or men drivers are the more dangerous behind the wheel? Yeah, for sure. So so generally, we found that men are more likely to take you know risks and have some risky driving behaviors. So they were at when you took an overall average, it was about seventy five percent, seventy six percent of men, sorry, um, admitted to these habits versus seventy one percent of women. So not not a huge overall difference, but where we saw bigger differences were men were much more likely to speed. Uh, or drive, admit to driving with their knees. Seven percent of men admitted to that, in, in very few women. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. Okay. This was a national survey that you did there at Finder dot com. Mm-hmm. So you're able to kind of break down the results by province. So let me yeah. ask you, who are the worst drivers that you found? In which province has the worst or most most dangerous drivers? Yeah, Saskatchewan actually takes oh. the cake for um, the the worst drivers in Canada. Um, so, so we, overall with the trends, we found that, um, you know, sort of prairie provinces, um, you know, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Alberta, uh, tended to score the most, the most highly, um, you know, BC a little less. So BC was about 70% of people admitting to these habits versus say, you know, when you look, we've looked at Saskatchewan, it was 88%. Um, so, so yeah, definitely those prairie provinces a little bit more dangerous than the rest of Canada. Okay, so does that mean that British Columbia scored well on the survey? They they you had most British Columbia you had the best score, the best outcome for safe driving in in BC. Um, I'm just looking at the overall numbers. I think yeah. it was fairly even between British Columbia and Ontario. So. Okay. Those two provinces and Quebec as well, actually. So it's, it's interestingly that the more populous provinces, you know, looking at those three um, that have more larger urban centers, surprisingly, uh, you know, had people ad- admitting to fewer uh, dangerous habits. Um, yeah, so it was okay. fairly even between those three. Interesting survey. Thank you. Side, yeah. Thanks a lot for coming on to talk about it.
Yeah, thanks so much, Mike. Thanks for having me on. All right, welcome back to the show. That is a really interesting survey on driving habits in Canada. It concludes that the most dangerous drivers in the country are in Saskatchewan. Yeah, it's a bit of an ignominious distinction there for the flatlands. Saskatchewan, worst drivers. Really? How about British Columbia? Well, British Columbia scores pretty well. What do you think about that? Do you think BC drivers are safer than other drivers in the country? Phone me on it. Tell me what you think. 604-280-9898 is the number. Toll free on your cell. Star 9898. Peter and Kamloops. Hey, Peter. Good morning. Enjoy your show, Mike. What drives me nuts is people that have their pets on their lap while driving. Oh, <laughs> okay. All right. How often do you see that? You know, I, I'm seeing it more often. Uh, it's, it's, um, I'm not sure if they're enforcing it or not enforcing it. I almost want to get out there and enforce it. You know, it's just, I think that's got to be the most distracted driving there is possible. Okay, Peter, thank you for that. Yeah, I guess you occasionally see that. Maybe if you got like a, literally a lap dog while you're driving. Hmm. Jennifer in Coquitlam. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, how's it going? I love your show. Good. Um, thank you. I think that one of, among the most dangerous habits would be anything that contributes to your um, being distracted or unpredictable, in particular, often unreported, or would be um, giving up the right of way. If you give up the right of way, you are contributing to the unpredictability of your driving and you could possibly cause an accident that the person behind you would never even foresee. Okay, so do you mean like when you're merging into traffic and it's your turn to merge and you kind of hesitate? Merging rules, slamming on your brakes because a dude needs to come out of a Safeway parking lot, um, anything to do with roundabouts, unpredictable, giving up the right of way. No, I hear you. That's a good one. Thank you, Jennifer. Yeah, sometimes people will hesitate, and I find myself stuck behind those people, too. It's like, go, will you? It's your turn. Let's go. Wendy in White Rock. Hi, Wendy. Hi there. Well, Peter stole my thunder, but um, you see a lot of times um, animals on people's laps while they're driving, obviously dogs, and they're not all small, and sometimes they're hanging their head out the window. Well, the dog is going to you know, be dead if you have to stop quickly or it goes out the window and I think it's really sad for the animal, to be quite honest, but okay. that's, that's my two cents. All right, Wendy, thank you for that. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. Jackie in Kelowna. Hi, Jackie. Hi. Hi. I think part of it is why uh, there's uh, maybe less accidents and less bad driving is the fact that the more popular provinces have so many um, you have to wait for an accident. You have to wait to merge. You have to, like, you're stuck in your car more than you're driving sometimes. Yeah, okay, that's an interesting one. Like, I wonder if maybe the reason that Saskatchewan comes out the worst there is maybe they've got lighter traffic, long, flat straightaways, and maybe the drivers think that that's an opportunity to drive a little more recklessly or carelessly i don't know maybe 604-280-9898 is the number to call keep calling me on this star 9898 on your cell dorothy in aldergrove hi dorothy oh hello there hello mike hi hi, hi. Uh, you were just you were, uh, you were just saying that they should have better training yes at, you know to start with but uh, i mean uh it's not that. A lot of it is just they have no consideration for other people on the road. Can you put that into training? Thank you, Dorothy. Well, I think you probably 
probably could. I mean, one of the things that drives me the nuts the most is if someone runs a red light, like that is super dangerous because some of the most dangerous and fatal and terrible accidents will happen at an intersection. So running a red light, and I see that frequently, that is one that drives me crazy. Now, I got a, an 18-year-old son at home. He doesn't have his license yet, but he wants to get his license. He was asking me if I could if I could teach him to drive. And you know what? I'm sending him to a certified driving school. Go and get a professional to teach you how to drive safely. Star 9898 in your cell. Steve in Vancouver. Hi, Steve. First off, kudos to you for getting a professional to teach your son how to drive. That's, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah, that was so my first on the road. Right on, right on. I'm on the road daily. Uh, I make my living on the road, and some of the most distracted drivers I see on a daily basis are uh, are fine uh, boys and ladies in blue who are uh, staring at their open laptops as they're driving straight ahead. So, I mean, um, I've, I've had them come veering into me on, on uh, oncoming traffic, and... Uh, and I really, uh, I think they should be pulling over and setting an example. Okay, thank you for that. Well, I've heard people complain about that when we got police officers who are on their laptops or the portable communication system that they have there, and that is not distracted driving under the law. Okay, so a drive a police officer, I as I understand the law. Uh, they are allowed to to look at that information because they could be looking up a license plate. They could be doing something really important to, to who knows, save somebody's life. So that is the deal and the explanation there. Uh, star 9898 on your cell. I think it, the next one, is, is it Scott or Ryan there, Tim? Okay, Scott in Vancouver. Hi, Scott. Hi, Mike. Uh, so I bet you the large reason our rates are so good in B.C. is the bulk of our population lives in the southwest corner of the province where it doesn't snow. Because what I yeah. see on the on the road is kind of crazy, and people in roundabouts that drives me absolutely berserk. The rule is, if you're in the roundabout, you have the right of way. I just got honked at about five minutes ago by somebody on the right who thought they had the right of way. So, anyway. you mean like you? You mean like you're in the roundabout, and the person waiting expects you to stop for them? Yeah, exactly. Because they're yeah. they're to the right. They think it's like a free intersection or a four way stop or whatever it is, yeah. but. The rule is, if you're in the roundabout, you have the right of way. Cyclists yeah. are really bad at it, too. Okay, let's squeeze in one more call. Thank you for that. Ryan in Maple Ridge. Hi, Ryan. Hi there. Uh, one of my biggest pet peeves, and I travel highway number one daily, uh, truck drivers on their phones. I was almost mm. literally hit literally hit by one yesterday that I was talking on his phone, steering with his elbow, and trying to shift gears as, he's, as he was pulling into Ooh. an intersection. Ooh, that's not good. Thank you for that. All right, welcome back to the show. One of the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic is it has trained a lot of focus on long-term care facilities in our province. It has been ground zero in some cases for the outbreak of COVID-19 at the beginning of the pandemic. We've seen tragically many deaths in long-term care, and there are a lot of calls to transform the long-term care system. Also concerns still out there about the ability of family members and loved ones uh, to visit their aging parents, grandparents, and loved ones in these facilities. Uh, let's talk to Isabel McKenzie about that now. She is British Columbia's independent advocate for seniors, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Thank you very much for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. <clears throat> Sorry, I've got something caught in my throat. Okay, no problem. We, we've got... Um, we're in the middle of a provincial election campaign here where all the political parties are kind of staking their grounds on, on long-term care. And I know you are an independent officer 
uh, in British Columbia, and I, I'm certainly not going to ask you to comment on on individual party platforms. So I just want to make that clear for the for the listeners that you're a neutral, politically neutral official here. But I think you do an awesome job on raising awareness about the situation in long-term care facilities in British Columbia, and this is like a high-profile conversation we're having in our province now. And maybe that's kind of in some ways, a silver lining behind the COVID-19 pandemic, because we're talking about this more than ever, I think. You did a, a report at some point on, on the state of long-term care in British Columbia, and it had some disturbing findings in there, right? Can you remind remind listeners about that report and what you found out? Well, we do a number of uh, reports, Mike. I think the one you're referring to is a, a systemic review of uh, the financial statements in our contracted sector, and and that certainly um, uh, revealed to us some discrepancies within the contracted sector about where money is going and um, where we think money might uh, be better spent. We also uh, report every year through uh, what we call our Quick Facts directory about what is happening, uh, you know, in our long-term care homes and in terms of um, uh, what are the hours of funded care, what are the inc- critical incidents, what are some yeah. of the quality indicators for each care home right. that receives public funding. And so I think the important thing is that, as you have identified, that people are paying more attention, the general public, because one of the things that I try to remind not only myself, but all of those of us who work in this field, most people are not directly impacted by long-term care. Most um, people will live in their own homes for the entirety of their life. Very few people will go to long-term care, and most of us will never see the inside of a long-term care home. So what this has, what this pandemic has done, I think, is allow people to understand and see, um, you know, what what this frail, vulnerable uh, population um, is is living with and through uh, in terms of um, uh, the COVID pandemic, which right. has revealed some fault lines, as we say. Let's talk. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the quality of care that seniors receive in, in long-term care in British Columbia. And I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who was seeking a place for for his mom, and as he was going around looking at various homes, uh, he found a real discrepancy in what appeared to be the kind of the quality of care that was available from home to home. And one of the things that jumped out at him was that some homes were aging facilities they were older buildings and those are the ones that just seemed to not be the most attractive option for for his mom do you have concerns about the, the state of of the the facilities in our province in terms of the, especially the older ones and are they are they providing enough quality care for our seniors well quality of care can be many things. Physical infrastructure can create a, a certain environment, and and there are robust discussions about how much the the design of a building uh, contributes to infection control. Whether there's multiple people in a room, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But the other side of quality of care, and arguably, I think, from those of us who who work in long term care, um, would say that. The, uh, the the kinds of activities, the kinds of um, staffing, the kinds of the the culture uh, is as important to the the quality of care. But to get back to 
uh, the what we would call the infrastructure, the the buildings. Yeah. Um, there certainly, um, when we look at it, there you know one of the questions, Mike, is it's a public system. Um, you when you go into long term care in British Columbia, we charge you eighty percent of your income up to thirty two hundred dollars. I think it is now. It's a, a, a maximum. And we charge that regardless of what care home you're in. And so uh, that, you know, raises an interesting question that if my mom's going into one of the newly built ones, uh, she's going to pay the same as the person who goes into the care home that hasn't really been renovated in the last 30 years and and maybe uh, my mom has a roommate and we're charging the same. So I think there is a, a growing recognition of that. Uh, there are um, one of the things to compare um, in British Columbia when we certainly compare ourselves to Ontario and markedly actually to New Brunswick, uh, no, Nova Scotia, where I was reading a report out of there, is uh, the percentage of our rooms that are single rooms in BC. So I think it's something like 88% of our rooms are single rooms and 76% of our residents are in a single room in BC. Um, and that's higher than you're seeing in Ontario um, and Quebec and, and out in uh, Nova Scotia. So that's a good thing, then? That's a good right. thing. It's not 100%, though, right? And so, right. you know, what I often say is, you know, that that's a good thing, but it's not of much comfort if you're the person sitting with three roommates. And yeah. <laughs> there aren't many of you, but you're one of them. Right. Um Let's talk about visiting our loved ones in care homes. And you've been outspoken on this. There was a rally a few days ago on the front steps of the legislature from people who want more visitation rights in homes. Uh, what are your thoughts on that now? Because I know you've been doing an online survey on that. Are you are you concerned about the the status of uh, visitation rights for people who want to visit their mom, their dad, their grandparents, their loved ones in, in a care home? Is that getting better? Um, it's not clear that it's it's getting better, uh, for example, than where it was in at the end of August. It's it's better than where we were in, um, you know, the end of May with our uh, very um, uh, strict restrictions uh, on who could visit the care home. Yeah. And I think that this, I mean, this is very, very difficult, Mike. And, sure. you know, I have a lot of empathy for my colleagues who are charged with actually making um, some of these decisions and, and providing this direction because there's no risk-free decision. But having said that, I think that it, we've got to recognize that we, we're looking at the next year, maybe even longer in long-term care. I think, you know, this is going to be the last place where we see life return to normal, uh, be, just because of the seriousness of this virus in the uh, long-term care population. So what is life going to look like for the next year? And I think that we all agree that the restriction to one person only, um, we've got to do something about that. But that's only part of it. Um, the other part is the frequency and duration of the visits. And so when you see that, I think it's about half of the respondents were visiting their loved ones several times a week or daily before uh, COVID. And uh, the great number of them went to no visits for the period of the lockdown. Very, very few have gone back to being able to have daily visits. Uh, Some of them are getting weekly visits. but not that many are getting um, the multiple times per week visit. And 
So I think we've got to look at that. And, you know, the other interesting thing is there's very high support for some form of restriction. So, um, uh, you know, of the people who answered the survey, there was strong support that, yes, we have to have some kind of restriction during this pandemic, uh, but not as strict as we have it right now. 